Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Today, we welcome Danny Popescu to The Business of You podcast. Danny has a very fascinating background. He started an investment dealership called Harborfront Wealth Management. Danny launched Harborfront with an $11 million personal investment and within nine years established, hold on to your hats, $425 million enterprise value when a Boston-based private equity firm called Audix Group bought a stake in his company. Today, the nearly 10-year-old company is one of North America's leading private equity firms, which is a rare occurrence in the independent wealth advisory world. Danny holds well over 24 years of experience in the industry, and Harborfront is the third company that he has successfully built. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Business of You. Until next time. Danny, welcome to The Business of You. It's so nice to have you here today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Excited to dive into your story. So Harborfront is the wealth management firm that you founded, right, um, several That's years right. ago in Canada. It's one of the largest wealth management firms in, in the country of Canada. It's probably one of the largest independents. Uh, there's about 150 firms out there. Uh, we're definitely at the top from a... Uh, uh, asset point of view, from a revenue point of view, uh, as well as profitability. Excellent. So how did you get into wealth management? Tell us tell us your story of origin. And uh, I understand you were born in Romania. So if you can start there, that always, th- those immigrant stories always make for such fascinating stories. Sure. Well, you know, I didn't have much say in uh, moving to Canada. My, uh, I was nine years old and, uh, um, you know, this was back when Romania was a communist country and my family wanted to, to do the best for us and, and uh, get us the heck out of there. And, um, and they did. So um, I ended up in Toronto uh, at nine years old. And um, yeah. How did your parents choose Toronto? Did you have family there? We did not. We did not. And I don't quite know, actually, how they chose Toronto. I think, you know, they, they chose Canada because they felt it's a it's, it's a good country to be in. Uh, it was relatively easy to get in at that time. And I guess Toronto being the largest city in Canada, uh, they probably felt that that's the, the best place to end up. What year was that? Uh, that was 1984. Okay. And so you grew up in Toronto. You went to high school there. Correct. And then where, what did you do for college? What did you study? I, I went to university at Brock University, and uh, I didn't like it very much, to be honest. And I, I stayed for two years, after which I started getting into wealth management, and I did a number of different courses and, and designations in, uh, in the field. Okay. 
So you kind of, you left college. You didn't stick with I it. I did. I did. Yeah. I uh, didn't have the patience for it, to be honest. And we call it university in, in Canada, uh, not college, but, but it's the same thing. Right. Well, good for you. I mean, so many successful entrepreneurs did the exact same thing, right? They left midway and, and paved their own path. It's, what interested you in, in managing other people's money? To be honest with you, I fell into the industry. Uh, but that said, I always uh, seemed to be good with money. Uh, not quite sure why. Perhaps I was just wired that way. Um, just maybe a, a genetic thing. But um, I um, I started out as a bank teller. I had a friend that said, hey, you know, if you want to get into finance, I, um, I've got this position as a bank teller. And, and I got into that. And I remember I was making $22,000 a year. And uh, I did that for about nine months. I, I was bored there really quickly. And uh, I moved up to um, uh, some type of financial services officer where I, I did mortgages and, uh, and GICs and, and, and some investment business. And I was tired of that really quickly, too. So then I, uh, I heard about this company that uh, hires rookies and you can start your own investment planning practice. And I, and I did that. I, I started there in uh, late uh, 1999. And uh, I built my own uh, wealth management practice, and I did that for about uh, eight or nine years um, at that particular company. Um, then I moved over to another company, continued to build that practice. And then in 2013, I started Harborfront uh, with my particular practice being the first practice within the company. And I, I no longer run that practice, but uh, that's kind of how, how it all came to be. Okay. What inspired you for the idea of Harborfront? And, and what I have read, the difference and the unique aspect of Harborfront is that you're taking retail investors' money and managing it into invest or investing it in man in sorry, investing it into opportunities that are typically not available to retail investors. Is that right? That's correct. So, you know, with my background as an advisor, what I noticed was that Canadian retail investors and really it, it was a phenomenal that, that phenomenon that was uh, occurring globally. Um, most retail investors, all they've had access to are traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds. And meanwhile, there are so many other asset classes. You know, you've got private equity, not just public equity and real estate. And, you know, you can go into art and infrastructure and collector cars. And, you know, when you when you think about um, assets, um, there are many more asset classes out there um, in addition to stocks and bonds. And not to say that, um, you know, we haven't gone into investing in collector cars or, or, or art or anything like that. And we probably never will. Um, but some of the bigger asset classes like private equity, private debt, uh, private real estate, um, other alternative strategies, um, that really there was a huge gap. Uh, and if you look at pension plans, they have very little money in traditional asset classes, particularly today. Um, you know, they might have 50, 60, 70% of their underlying allocation to these different types of asset classes, yet retail investors um, were limited to public security. So I saw that as a need for uh, Canadians, which which would help them. Um, and I also saw a huge business opportunity there. So that was um, sure. I, I figured that would be, that would be my huge differentiator because, as is likely the case in every industry, uh, there's often a lot of competition. So if you don't have a good differentiator and and, and an ability to execute on your vision, um, it's very difficult to succeed. 
Having built the wealth management practice at your in your initial role, right? So that probably took you to around 2007 or so. That's right. Uh, so, you know, but I I, I moved uh, to a couple companies, so I I, I did the uh, financial advisory side until 2013. So for okay. about years. Okay. How difficult on a scale of one to 10, 10 being very difficult, was it to actually launch your own firm after you had built up those practices in the other organizations? It, it definitely wasn't easy. There are a lot of different components. There's obviously investment of capital. There's a lot of risk um, because at first clients don't know who you are, you're a brand new firm, and they might interpret that uh, there's no stability there. Uh, there was a big uh, regulatory hurdle. Um, there's all kinds of licensing and registration that's required in Canada. Um, so it was definitely an undertaking. And um, it was about a two-year process in the making. But um, we knew we would get it done. And and uh, we did it. And, you know, it wasn't just the initial launch. After that, we continued to evolve and added more services. Uh, we keep kept growing by adding advisors and their client basis. And we continue to grow. So it, it, it's never a... Uh, a one-time thing, but you're right. You know, starting um, you know the 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 dealership itself uh, was definitely a, an undertaking. Mm-hmm. How about back in the in your earlier years? Had had it impacted your reputation in any way, or people's ability to trust you with their wealth that you had not finished university, or was that just not even a factor at that point? It, it wasn't even a factor, and. Um, you know, I could, uh, when, when I was seeing clients, you know, and I, I've seen hundreds of clients over the years, I could remember one or two times when somebody even asked me about um, university, you know, they, they very much care about, uh, you know, what's applicable. So, you know, what type of, you know, designations and, and accreditation do you have that are relevant to your uh, particular industry? But what I would say is, and, and you know, this applies uh, when I'm hiring people today, I actually don't put too much, education is very important and don't get me wrong, I want my kids to uh, to go to university, but I tell them that often street smarts is is far more important than, than, than what you learn by reading in books. And so when I hire people today, um, I don't spend too much time focusing on where they went to school. Um, really, we're making an investment in them and I want to picture them into the new environment uh, to say, hey, you know, can this person fit in here? and essentially provide a return on the investment that we make by hiring them. So a little bit of their experience is important, but also, you know, even if they had a great experience, if it's not applicable at the new organization, uh, then it's irrelevant. There's no value there. So the most important part is often their personalities because most people can learn. So their personalities, you know, their work ethic, um, uh, their ambition, um, their, their communication skills, you know, I, I put far more, uh, stock, so to speak in, in, in this than I put in, uh, you know, the, the educational background. Yeah, no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I feel like when people have those skills that you just mentioned, they can pretty much be taught anything, right? So, so sometimes that makes for, for a better team when you can train them on your own processes and systems anyways. Do you remember either in the life of Harborfront or in the lifetime of your earlier career as a wealth manager, like that unique client that really kind of helped you go over this tipping point within your your own career? Um, I don't think there was a unique client. 
Um, a lot of what I did was a little bit of rinse and repeat. So, you know, definitely the client sizes tended to vary. Uh, I realized early on that um, it, it's easier to have a, a smaller client base with fewer clients and higher net worth. And that's that's not that wasn't unique to me. So uh, there wasn't one particular client. But really what I learned is I, I, I understood the psychology behind decision making uh, of, of human beings in, in general. And, and, and I think I learned a lot through that that wasn't just helpful in getting additional clients and building a client base, but it was also helpful in learning how advisors think. And, you know, anybody that uh, needs to, to do what you want them to do, you need to understand what their motivations are and how you can inspire them uh, to, uh, to come around. Mm-hmm. So was there a fairly long lead time in, when you first met somebody to when they decided to invest their money with you? Um, it depends. Um, generally, no. Uh, generally, we ran a process where we met individuals either through social functions or uh, we did a lot of uh, educational talks. And then we had a process, you know, where they would usually come in right away. And we had a process of a number of meetings and uh, we would do business with them. Some of them would not do business with us at all. And uh, the reason for it, generally speaking, was that they, you know, a lot of people, um are complacent, quite honestly. And even though they're presented with an idea that they realize that it would be better for them, uh, this is something that I was very uh, surprised to learn over the years, but um, there are a lot of very complacent people out there. And, uh, you know, um, and, and we see that in, in, in every industry. Yeah, absolutely. It's mind boggling sometimes when you realize oh. how many there are out yeah. there. What aspects of your personality or, you know, what I define as your personal brand, do you think have really helped you grow Harborfront? Um, yeah, you know, I think I'm, uh, I'm fortunate that uh, I can be a, a good generalist. So I have um, decent knowledge on a number of different areas. So everything from marketing to sales to uh, business development to uh, organizational skills um, perhaps good interpersonal skills. So, um, and, and I think I've got, uh, I, I, if we go back to that psychology, I really think that that's really important. Again, uh, when you're working with people, um, which is, which is hundred percent of my job, it's a matter of, of, uh, getting people to, um, to do, uh, to, to do what you ask them to do. And, uh, some people are more effective at that than others. I, I, I think I'm fortunate that I've been quite effective at that. And, and I think also perhaps I can be a little bit creative because a lot of the, the products that we've put in place are, are out of the box. And um, that, that's been a big uh, differentiator uh, for us. And then I guess I would add, uh, you know, good work ethic and, um, you know, failure is just not an option. And I can visualize how something would unfold. Of course, there's risk, but uh, I've never really had a situation, knock on wood, where um, something that I've envisioned doing uh, has not panned out. Mm. That's great. You have full of conviction, it sounds like. Yeah, and I guess my my risks are calculated. So some people think I'm aggressive, you know, to be an entrepreneur and, you know, you're, you're taking huge risks. I would argue that, uh, you know, I, I definitely do take risks, but they're very calculated. And in a number of ways, I'm actually quite conservative. So I'm a conservative entrepreneur, I suppose you could say. 
Um, but um, yeah, I don't I don't gamble. Uh, if I don't see how something would unfold, I just I, I don't uh, move on on uh, such an initiative. How do you think, Danny, if uh, your employees would describe you if they were talking about you, but you weren't in the room? Um, I think I think most of our employees are are happy with me. Um, you know, if you ask me how would some of your industry peers view you, there there probably be some some mixed um, uh, you know opinions there. But definitely our employees, I, I I believe, you know, given that they're with us, um, they they probably would describe me as a as a passionate uh, visionary. I I suppose. Um, that would probably be, you know, a passionate visionary that uh, is there to execute. Uh, that that would probably be the theme, at least. How do you build a culture within such a large organization? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an excellent question. And you know, uh, there's the saying that culture eats strategy uh, for breakfast. Uh, I actually think that strategy is very important, um, but culture is also very important. Um, I think you know your employees need. Uh, to understand why they're doing what they're doing. Um, we try to stay away from silos and having employees that, you know, only understand their department. Uh, we try to teach them how they fit into the overall goal and uh, why their roles are important and uh, why they're valuable to the organization. And we also speak to an end goal or to a vision and how we're benefiting uh, the end consumer. Um, so I think having them involved and engaged in what it is that we're all doing is extremely important rather than just being a taskmaster and uh, telling them to uh, to do their job and limiting it to that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are there certain values that you feel like your company um, lives up to and you vet or your, you know, your team vets to see if those similar values are in potential future employees? Yeah, I think, and, and you're right, you know, back to the, the culture aspect, I think I'm seen as a pretty easygoing person to work for. And um, I think that's a good thing. Sometimes maybe it bites me in the butt a little bit, but uh, um, I'm easygoing, so people are not threatened by me. I'm uh, very approachable. And um you know, and we'll never take advantage of anybody. They they know we're, we're we're ethical, so I think that gives people a lot of comfort. So so the ethics that we have uh, towards employees that translates towards clients, and people just feel that they work at a at a good organization that that treats them fairly and treats them with respect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I do think people are always looking for that, and then that's a great way to build loyalty, right? When they know that that mutual respect ex- exists. That's right. What's one thing that keeps you up at night in running Harbor Front? You know, you always worry about risk. You worry about um, regulatory changes that make your, your business more difficult. Um, you worry about uh, ensuring that the advisors have all the proper tools uh, that they need. They're, everything doing, they're doing everything right. Um, and then you always worry about growth, you know, th- despite the fact that you know, you've got a great track record and growth always seems to happen. You always wonder, you know, what's going to happen this year ahead. And and perhaps that's what that's what uh, makes you successful, because if you thought it was automatic and it was just going to happen just because it happened last year, and the, the year before and the year before that, um, 
you know, you, you, you can't take your, your foot off the gas ever. No, not as an entrepreneur, right? There's always something that comes that, uh, that is unexpected. How did, how did you and your team weather the last couple of years with the, uh, with just, you know, and actually currently, how are you weathering this, uh, fluctuation in the market? And I know it's especially in the American market, but how does that impact the work that you're doing? Sure. You know, so, so for one, most of our advisors are seasoned. Uh, they've been in the business 15, 20, you know, 30 years in some cases. So they've been through various market cycles and they've properly educated their clients. They've got the tools, they've got the communication skills to keep their cl- uh, clients focused on the long-term plans. Uh, but in particular, um, we're not doing much to react, uh, but we've prepared and what we mean by that is, again, when you're when you're focusing purely on traditional asset classes like publicly traded stocks or bonds, that's why you see tremendous volatility is because you can press a button and sell a security in, in milliseconds, uh, which is why you can see a two, three percent decline uh, in a security or, you know, or, 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 or an index in a day. The nice thing about private security, so private businesses is. You know, they're not valued, uh, you know, every second or, or even more frequently. And um, you, you get significantly more stability. Um, you don't get uh, investor emotion uh, impacting the underlying values or the perceived value uh, on a daily basis. So by diversifying your portfolio uh, with alternative asset classes that are not correlated to these public markets, uh, the drawdown overall that our advisors see is significantly lower. So that's something that we're really proud of, you know, going back to, and this is a perfect, this is, you know, this, this proves our thesis that, you know, Hey, when, 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 when markets are strong, everything goes up. It doesn't really matter what securities you might hold. Um, you know, if you're concentrated one way or another, if generally speaking, everything goes up, but when markets go sideways, like we're seeing today, that's when diversification uh, you know, truly shines. And, uh, you know, diversification doesn't just mean, um, you know, only multiple stocks, because again, they tend to often go the same direction and in, 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 uh, generally speaking um, in, in certain environments. So I think we've done extremely well on a relative basis, given our significant penetration to um, alternative asset classes. We've got more than 25% of our assets held in these more stable uh, investments. And what are some of those types of investments, Danny? Um, you know, one, one example that's easier to explain is private equity. Uh, you know, sometimes people don't understand what that is, but uh, when you talk about public equity, essentially stocks, okay, publicly traded companies. Um, so, you know, if you look at uh, the U.S., for example, the largest market in the world, and you add up all the various uh, indices, uh, you get roughly 3,200 stocks. So essentially everyone is competing for those same 3,200 stocks. But it's estimated that in the U.S., to, to, to keep it to the same region, you've got 30 million private businesses. So money is not just made by investing in businesses on the stock market. You can invest in businesses that are looking to raise capital, uh, private businesses. And so you, you've got a lot um, you've got a lot more available, um, you know, from a from a pool of companies um, in the private space that you have in the public. Um, so investors just need to recognize that, hey, don't be limited to public securities. 
because they tend to be overvalued usually because everyone's competing for the same securities and they tend to be extremely volatile. Um, so look at the private space too. Uh, now then when you look at bonds, bonds are essentially, you're buying debt, you're lending somebody money, whether it's a company or a government or a municipality, whatever it is. Um, well, you could also lend money privately to businesses and individuals and you know, you can you can lend money for the purpose of mortgages and so forth. So we're trying to teach our clients to look beyond what's easily accessible and what they've been promoted for the last, you know, 50 to 100 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's so fascinating. Do you share like the common ROI that you get for most of your investors? Yeah. So, it, you know, it varies, obviously. The average. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, and, and if you look at, uh, you know, two advisors, usually no two portfolios are alike, uh, or no, sorry, no two advisor practices are alike. And sometimes even when you dig in a little bit deeper and you look at their um, uh, individual accounts, they may vary from, from one to another. And obviously timing might have something to do with it. Even if you've got the same portfolio, when uh, you invested will will impact it. So, you know, we usually tell our clients to expect anywhere from a 6 to an 8% rate of return, depending on their uh, appetite for risk. Um, and that is an average. So, um, you know, we, we've done far better than the bond market. We've been preaching to our clients for a long time not to invest in bonds, you know, over the last three to four to five years. And we've been teaching them to look at different ways to get uh, income stability. Um, and, um, you know, through real estate, through mortgage investment corporations. So some of these things will do again between six to eight to to 9%, uh, but it depends on when clients buy them. So, you know, in the stock market, you get some fluctuations. So the returns aren't as linear, whereas in some of these private securities, they tend to be uh, more consistent. But overall, I think, uh, you know, don't get me wrong, there, there are clients that have you know, we'll get a 10 to 12% to a 15% certain years. But I think uh, on average, most of our clients are not looking to, to get rich overnight. They're looking to to protect their life savings. And so, um, you know, a, a balanced approach between multiple asset classes uh, to reduce that drawdown and volatility is, is what they all seem to like. So yeah, I, I would say a six to an 8% return, a net of fees is usually what we, uh, what we target. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I was reading you recently took in a an investment and sold the stake of your firm to a company called Audex, right? A Boston-based private equity firm. That's right. What what inspired that move? Sure. So, you know, we've been teaching advisors. Our whole model is, um, you know, we, we bring on advisors and they become equity owners in the company. They're not employees at a bank. We're teaching them to say, hey, you know, right now you own one business, which is your book of business. Well, if you come over to us, you could actually own three businesses. And in fact, potentially even more since we've got some some, uh, sister businesses. But for the most part, you own that brokerage firm. So, you know, if you work at Bank ABC and that bank supports you, that there is a business model in itself, the house, so to speak. So why don't you own that house as well? Furthermore, that would be your second business now. Furthermore, if you outsource some of your investment management to third parties and you invest in pools or funds, whatever it might be, you're also putting money and revenue in the pocket of those institutions. Well, why not own that business as well? 
And advisors are very um, proud of the fact that they can one day monetize their books of businesses, essentially sell it to you know somebody that they're bringing up or a family member or whatever it might be. So we teach them that, hey, at that time, instead of just selling your practice, you know, or maybe the time doesn't quite correlate, but you could also sell, you know, your equity stake in this in this overall business. So, um, you know, in addition to, you know, a big value proposition for us is providing clients something that is truly good for them, which is these alternative asset classes. But we want to help advisors as, as well. And we want advisors to become greater entrepreneurs. And so we tell them to, to own the firm. And so our model has been to say, hey, we will monetize the, the, the firm one day. And although most advisors buy into that, sometimes until you've seen it for yourself, um, you know, it's, it's, it's difficult to believe. So we weren't actually looking to raise any capital because we are very well capitalized and we get phone calls quite regularly. But what we realized when we were approached by an investment banking group in, in Canada, uh, what we realized was that, um, you know, it might be good for us to do a partial monetization, A, take some chips off the table, but also prove to the industry that our thesis uh, you know, is, is now a reality. And so we established a very healthy valuation and all the money that we raised went back to shareholders. So it, it wasn't invested in the business in order to help us grow the business because as I said, we didn't need that money. And this is quite unusual. Most uh, firms raise capital in order to get that next level of growth. We did not need it. So every single one of our shareholders received uh, their pro rata stake. And in addition to that, we actually paid out a very large dividend uh, because of all the cash that we had um, uh, in the till. And the game plan now is, you know, we the, the the firm is currently valued at about 425 million with this with this recent raise. Our goal is to bring the firm to about one and a half to to two billion. So the next round um, is actually going to be significantly higher. And the catalyst of having done this deal and again substantiating our our um, our thesis um, is helping us. Uh, you know, a lot of advisors and a lot of other firms are taking notice and saying, "Hey, I want to hitch my wagon to you." Um, so, so that was part of the, the the reason as well is really use it as a catalyst. So people are, you know, believe in, in what it is that we're doing and, and uh, eventually join us. You had a lot of happy investors and advisors, I'm guessing, when they got the mail. We, we sure did. And I continue to get texts and they're quite, you know, quite heartwarming. You know, people will say, hey, you've changed my life and, uh, you know, my family is uh, will ever be indebted to you. And uh, it's really great to, to, to give back and to make an impact in people's lives. And we, we want to do it becomes a. Uh, addictive and uh, we, we want to do it again. So we're very excited to, uh, you know, the, the next time that we can do something like this. And meanwhile, uh, we're doing something truly amazing for, for our clients. So uh, it really is win-win. Yeah, absolutely. Congratulations on that. Thank you. What is it that keeps you motivated and keeps you inspired? I mean, I, mean, I imagine, you know, managing this massive team, working across a, a massive country, right? What, what is it that, again, like keeps you going, keeps you in the flow, keeps you sharp? Yeah, I, I think, to be honest with you, I can't really take much credit for this. I think it's my personality and I, I truly believe that it's genetics. Uh, I'm just one of these individuals that likes to build and grow and uh, I can't sit still in general. Even when I'm done work in the evenings, I don't watch Netflix or um, I'm constantly needing to do something that I deem as productive. 
uh, it could be a little bit of a curse at times. But again, it's just a, it's just a personality trait. And um, it's, it's no longer about the money. Um, it's just, uh, it, it, it's a game, so to speak. It's just very exciting to see something get bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, my, my, my personal situation has changed a little bit now where I guess you get a certain point in your life where you think, okay, well, you know, business is important and let's keep doing what we're doing, but let's see how we can touch the lives of more and more people uh, along the way. And um, it, it's very gratifying to, uh, to be able to help so many people uh, in addition to yourself. So, so, so that I think um, uh, forms part of uh, the reason, but uh, for the most part, it's just, I just, I don't think I'm one of those individuals that will ever retire. I'll, uh, you know, and I may evolve in, in what I'm doing. I'll probably always be in, in, in the financial services industry because this is the only thing I know. But um, yeah, it's, I, I think again, it's, it's very much a, a, a personality trait. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Oh, well, I love the way you're innovating on the financial services industry. I mean, it's obviously been around for years and it, it's an industry that hasn't had a ton of innovation. So um, that's great that you're finding ways to make, again, the retail investor more money and creating access for them and, and changing lives. I mean, what a wonderful thing to do. What's what's next on your horizon, Danny, just on, for your own personal achievement? Um, you know, business obviously is, is one of them. So I would say that it, there's more than one. You know, I'm really focused now uh, on our next chapter. So, you know, over the next four to five years, we want to go uh, really hard and continue to, to grow this business, you know, four to five fold. And in addition to that, you know, I do want to spend a little bit more time with my kids and ensure that, that they turn out good. You know, they're, they're 14 and 11 and I want to pass down, uh, you know, some of the things that I've learned to them. Um, so that that's important as well. And I want to give back in general to the community and whether that's the community of, of retail investors in Canada, also the community of advisors. And um, I think beyond our own clients, you know, there's always a first in everything, in every business. So we're doing some things that are unique, as you say, and the competition is taking notice. And, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now, what we're doing might become mainstream. But, you know, we know that we started that trend. So, um, you know, it's, it's a great legacy to leave. So, so those would be the, the top three things I would say that I'm, I'm focused on, you know, leaving a legacy, uh, helping our clients and our advisors and uh, not ignoring my kids as well, ensuring that they turn out, uh, that they turn out well as well. That is not easy to do in this world. No, is it? especially with my <laughs> kids. <laughs> I'm sure they're lovely. Well, Danny, thank you so much for taking the time to connect today. Can you please share the best place for people that might be listening to this interview to, to reach out to you or to learn more about Harborfront? Um, yeah, well, I'm available on LinkedIn. Um, so they can they can reach me via LinkedIn, Danny Popescu. Uh, with respect to learning more about our uh, about Harborfront, our website, it's harborfrontwealth.com. Now, it is the Canadian spelling. I know this is a U.S. Uh, uh, podcast. So Harborfront is H-A-R-B-O-U-R. Uh, so harborfrontwealth.com. Uh, Excellent. Thanks so much, Danny. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. 
Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.